So there's this dinner party and a family has invited a couple of other families over to share a meal and they decide that they're gonna serve it buffet style so everybody can grab a plate and you know, you've all done this, go down the line and get, uh, get your food. And so they gather everybody together ahead of time and you know, give the buffet instructions and probably pray, uh, you know, say grace. And all of a sudden, mom looks at dad and dad looks at mom, they nod at each other and mom and dad both look at the kids and whisper FHB. And nobody else but mom and dad and the kids hear this. But something really important has been communicated that affects the rest of dinner. FHB stands for Family Hold Back. And these are some really good friends of ours. And when their kids were growing up, social people, they'd invite other people over to, for dinner and every once in a while somebody would bring an extra kid or something like that and mom and dad would look around and realize we don't have enough food to go around. And so they would do the FHB signal and then so the family would hold back so that all the guests had plenty of food. And it was just kind of a, a neat thing. It taught their kids that there are other people besides them. It also taught them that every meal was not their last meal and that they probably wouldn't starve. But it really made them aware of other people and other people's needs. And that's what we're going to consider this morning, is the other people around us. And so we're going to do that by looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, which comes down to us as the parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go to, away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. One time years ago, somebody said to me, what gets measured gets accomplished. And this is Jesus saying, here's what gets measured. 
Now, sometimes with passages like this, I kind of laugh at how we approach life because we'll take a lot of time and kick around some fairly obscure passages. And every once in a while, we come to something where Jesus is pretty cut and dry. And we want to try and figure out how we can get around that. So I think it's kind of funny. But Jesus is basically saying, this is what the thing is that's going to get measured. So let's look at accomplishing that. Now, the parable of sheep and the goats, I'm not even sure it's really a parable. It might be an analogy with a long explanation. Nobody likes the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's one of my favorite passages, but it's a terrible parable. And the reason nobody likes it is because it's prophetic. And the only time we like prophetic stuff is when people are prophesying doom on people that we don't approve of. But this particular prophecy is turned in on us. And it's very uncomfortable, which is exactly what prophets are supposed to do. They're supposed to make us uncomfortable. Because prophecy isn't really about predicting the future. In fact, the Bible really isn't into that at all. Frequently, it's condemned, or at the very least, it's set aside. When Jesus says stuff like, no one knows the time, or therefore, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Bible doesn't do a whole lot. Let's sit down and figure out what the future will hold. And so prophecy is generally not what that's about. What prophecy is about is to warn us or to challenge our behavior. It's always used to call people back to their relationship with God. And so for us, this is a passage that's about calling us back to following Jesus more closely. It's a reminder to follow Jesus because when we follow Jesus, we find life there. We find a better way. We find a way that brings us peace and joy and significance. When we talk about following Jesus, we aren't talking about something that will suck all the fun out of life. And that's really important to remember. So prophecy calls us back to what's important, especially when the temptation is to forget. So this passage fits in right well with where we are right now. It's important for us to ask the questions that we are, what now? What should we be about? What should we be doing? Because if we want to live purposefully, what we do matters. I've noticed the last several weeks in church, I have never heard us sing like we sing now. We just want to worship together. We just want to sing together. We're so glad to be together, but that will pass. And pretty soon, we'll be tempted to forget how much we missed being together and start missing being together. So as we think about what now and what's the important stuff, this parable fits in well because Jesus is basically saying, this is what disciples look like. This is what disciples do. Now, this is a hard section of scripture. There's a lot of confusing things in there. I mean, does this teach that salvation is through works, not by grace? What exactly is the point of the sheep and the goats being there? Who are the least of these? And what is meant by all of the nations? So there's some difficult stuff in there. But one of the, the primary ways that we can get into understanding with the Bible it's is saying is interpret the difficult parts through the easy stuff. 
And so there are two portions of scripture that I think are foundational to help us understand this passage. The first is Matthew 24, 46, where Jesus says, blessed is the servant whose master finds him at work when he arrives. And then Matthew 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And that's the thing that's really clear in the text. We need to be doing what Jesus wants us to do. So let's unpack things a little bit. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory and all the angels with him, he'll sit on his glorious throne. So we have this picture of end time judgment. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, all sorts of things have been written about separating sheep from goats. It was thought that maybe the goats needed to be separated from the sheep because goats are more susceptible to cold than sheep. So you've got to put them in where they'll be warm. They have to be protected and separated out. Maybe the separation was for milking the ewes. Or maybe it was to separate the young males for slaughter. Did you know that there is only one letter difference between the word slaughter and the word laughter? Spellcheck taught me that. This point originally was, came out, separate the young males for laughter, which I'm sure is what they would have preferred, but slaughter was what they were doing. But even though all of that has been thought about, culture, culturally, it's not like the people thought about goats and sheep as representing different things. And it's not even certain from the text that goats are in view. The normal word for goat is not the word that's used there. And no specific reason is given for the separation. And there's no cultural reason that everyone would have understood when they heard it. And all of that really is good, I think, because it makes the story even more shocking. There's nothing that prepares us for what happens to the goats. It certainly comes as a shock to the goats. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my, by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Here's what Jesus is interested in, caring for people's needs. And this is where some of the problems in the text come up. Because there's nothing about preaching the gospel here. You'd think Jesus would care about that. There's nothing about believing in Jesus here. You'd think Jesus would care about that. But this is not an exhaustive text. It's not an exhaustive text about judgment. It's not an exhaustive text about salvation. Uh, and it's not a text about preaching the gospel or believing in Jesus. It's a text about what happens in our lives when we receive the gospel. What happens when we believe in Jesus? The focus isn't on people in need. The focus is on how the people of God respond to both Jesus and people who are in need. And neither Jesus nor Matthew, nor certainly not James, ever, ever separate faith from action. For them, faith always produces action. And this story will illustrate that dramatically. 37, 
Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters, you did for me. Essentially, you didn't see me there, but you didn't need to see me because you are the type of person who cares. Jesus isn't keeping score. What he's talking about is being the type of person who cares about other people. Jesus is not saying who met the most needs. Jesus is pointing out what type of people they are. And then he points out something really amazing. And I was there in all of those needy people. But they weren't motivated by who the person was. They were motivated simply by seeing someone in need. And that's important to the story. It's like Jesus says, you just naturally, because you are that type of person, because you have been changed by being in relationship with me, you saw a need and you filled it. And I can just see all the sheep looking around going, wow, we, we were just doing what we thought the people of God were supposed to do. Who knew? Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? It's like the goats are like, wait, what? See, the goats think they're getting in. This is the stunning part. This comes as a surprise to the goats. They think they've done all of the right things. And that's why I'm using chapter 7, verse 21 as a guide. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So what do we make of this? What is Jesus saying to them? Did you really see the people who were in front of you? You did some flashy stuff, but you never really found the heart of God. You never really were changed. You never really did the most important things. How do I know this? Because they asked the question, when did we see you? And the implication is, if we'd known some, it was someone important, of course we would have done something about that. And he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Basically, he tells them the same thing he told the others. I was there in those people, but you never saw me because you never really saw them. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's scary, especially since the goats thought they were in. They didn't come to this meeting thinking, oh, maybe yes, maybe no. They came with total yes. So the point of the story isn't to make you afraid that you aren't saved. The point of the story is that it's not too late to be a sheep. The point of the story is it's not too late to evaluate the priorities in our lives. The question that the text asks is not, have you done X number of merciful acts? The question that the text asks is, what kind of person are you? And identity is always the issue. If we are in Christ, which is Paul's phrase for it, we will look and behave a certain way. 
Are you a person whose life is characterized by the love and mercy and grace of God? One of my seminary professors, Klein Snodgrass, uh, wrote a great book on parables. And on this parable, he says, a person is not a disciple of Christ on the basis of ancestry, ritual act, or liturgical confession. One is a disciple in actually following Jesus's compassion and obedience to the will of the Father. We're not a Christian so much because of what we say as by what we do. It's a reminder that faith produces obedience to God's will. If there's no obedience to God's will, is there really faith? And once again, we talk about grace which is freely given, but grace comes at a price, and the price is obedience, change. So there's this huge contrast between the sheep and the goats. The sheep's act of compassion wasn't done for a reward. That's what the surprise is about. It's showing motivation. The sheep were motivated by the need that they saw. The goats were motivated by what they could get out of it. And it wasn't worth their while to do it for people who weren't important. One reflects kingdom values and one doesn't. And both show where their hearts really are. So what does all this mean for us? I think it means that we need to look with God's eyes at what's in front of us. Now, this is not necessarily about what's going on on the other side of the world, although it could be that. We can far more easily see what's going on around the world than people could even 50 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. And it very much is a global village. But I think it has more to do with the stuff that you're going to see in your regular life which means likely it'll be people that you'll come across as you just live your life this week. As you come across people this week, what if you imagined that it was Jesus there? How would that change your opinions? How would that change your actions? Because that's pretty much the point of the story, is that the people that we come across with needs are Jesus there in front of us. You think, but the need in the world is overwhelming. Absolutely. But the need in front of you is generally manageable. And then I think we need to ask if we want to be about the most important things, most important to whom? Because that, that's really what the rub is. What is most important in our society? What is most important in your friend group? What is most important to Jesus? What is most important to you? Those may be four completely separate things. And so you may need to look at what are your priorities. And if you want to know the easiest way to know what your priorities are, look at what you spend your money on. Say what you will, but your money leaves a very accurate trail. What I think we've learned over the last year, and what I would have made the case for anyway, is that the strongest witness for the reality of Jesus the strongest witness for the good news of the gospel is lives of compassion and mercy. Lives lived loving and caring for other people. I think in our own congregation, there have been years of people faithfully ministering in the women's prison, but in other prisons too. 
There have been thousands of hours helping people get the basic needs of life through the Northwest Furniture Bank. Weeks and weeks of service have been given to help provide a safe place to be loved and hear about Jesus for kids who live in the Alaskan bush. Developmentally disabled adults have a place where they're treated with dignity and have an opportunity to do stuff that we take for granted, like going in a canoe at a place that's been cared for by the people of Harbor Covenant. I wish you could all read the thank you notes that I received from people that we helped over this last COVID year. When we were hoarding toilet paper for crying out loud, our folks still showed up to donate toilet paper and food to students in need at UWT. When masks weren't available early on, people in this church made masks for frontline workers and sent them around the country and people made them for us. And I could go on and on and on. This is who we are. We are people who love and care for others in Jesus's name. The thing is that we have to re-up and we have to make sure that we are intentionally still doing those things. And we have to invite people to join us as we respond to the grace that we have found in Jesus. This is particularly germane for us now because we're setting new habits and we're setting new norms for our lives and for our community. I've heard it said that people are like tea bags. You never really know what's in them until you put them in hot water. And that was certainly true of this last year. What did you find out about yourself in the COVID year when you were in hot water? What was really inside of you? Maybe you discovered something that you didn't know was there. But I think we're also going to find out a lot about people this year as we move forward. We've been cooped up for a year. Many of us are very aware that we've missed a lot of things and there's a lot of catching up to do. I know I certainly am going to try. But if this becomes the year of focusing on me, what becomes of the priorities of God? What becomes of the priorities of the church? What becomes of the people to whom we could be ministering? So let me ask you a couple of questions. If you were to show Jesus your current priorities, what suggestions would he make? Number two, what new habit can you form to make sure your priorities reflect your commitment to Jesus? And number three, in the people you will come across this week, where do you think you might see Jesus?